When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangy Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. That's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stangy Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangy Law Firm has an office in Wichita. Kirk Stangy, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri. Hey everybody, I'm Ted Price from Insomniac Games. On this episode of the Game Maker's Notebook, I got a chance to sit down with Mary DeMarle and Jean-Francois Dugas of Eidos Montreal. Mary is the Senior Narrative Director and Jean-Francois is the Senior Creative Director for the recently released and super entertaining Marvel's Guardians of the Galaxy game. We spent some time hearing about Mary's and Jean-Francois' beginning in the industry and then we jumped right into how they and their team created the game. We talked at length about their wonderful characterizations of the Guardians and how they managed to weave story, dialogue, and design so seamlessly together. We discussed the evolution of their combat mechanics, the excellent music, and much, much more. And both Mary and Jean-Francois graciously shared some of their key learnings from production. Please join us. Welcome to The Game Maker's Notebook, a podcast featuring a series of in-depth one-on-one conversations between game makers providing a thoughtful, intimate perspective on the business and craft of interactive entertainment. The Game Maker's Notebook is presented by the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, a member-driven organization dedicated to the recognition and advancement of interactive entertainment. Francois, Mary, thank you so much for being on the show. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Thank you. And I want to congratulate you on a super entertaining and engaging game with Guardians. Uh, I had a lot of fun playing. And we're going to talk plenty about it today. And I, But I wanted to take a few steps back and ask you each a couple of questions about your own personal journey, if you don't mind. Okay. Sounds good. So, Mary, did you always know you wanted to be a game writer? I always knew I wanted to be a storyteller. Um, although I often tell the story that I, I, I knew I wanted to be a writer, but I was afraid. So I tried many different avenues first. So I tried film. Um, I tried publishing. Um, I stumbled into games, but as soon as I stumbled into games, it was where I knew that I really, really wanted to be because the challenge of writing for games was unlike, unlike any other, in my opinion. How did you stumble into games? I was working in, I was actually living in LA and I had been working for several years. I'd worked for Hanna-Barbera and I had worked um, for a small company that was making basically what we, interactive, um, well, we would call it now, I guess, um, it was teaching through games. Okay. So they, they weren't actually games, but they were they were definitely like game-like productions that were teaching, you know, how to be a better salesman, stuff like that. And a college friend of mine was living in San Diego and her boyfriend was a programmer working for a small uh, studio, Presto Studios. Hmm. They made a series of games called The Journeyman Project. And they were looking for another game writer to join their team. And they, my friend knew that I wanted to write stories and things like that. So I ended up sending them like a chapter of an unfinished novel and they hired me and that's how it all started. Oh, that's great. Wow. That's a, that is a blast from the past hearing about Presto. Uh, <laughs> yes. 
but but congratulations on on entering that profession in games because uh, man, it, it seems to have evolved significantly. So, you know, a- having been a writer for so long in our industry, what do you think some of the key requirements are for being a successful writer in games today? You definitely have to be flexible and you have to be collaborative. Um, you have to understand that yes, you're shepherding a story along, but your the story that you're creating is also being created by um, designers, by level artists, by gameplay people. And the primary thing you're focusing in on is the player fantasy through your story. Um, all of which kind of means that you are not in charge of the story. You are as the writer, you're, you are, but you have to recognize that um, the that the journey will be under the player's control at all time and you have to kind of just let it go. That is great advice. Thanks. So Jean-Francois, what was your journey like into the creative director role? Um, well, it started uh, as a kid. As a kid, uh, I started to play games like uh, in the late 70s, early 80s, and I fell in love with that. And uh, uh, with games, I was also big on movies, on big fantasy stories and stuff like that. Uh, when I was playing with my friends, I was the one setting up the rules. And because like I was saying, my, my friends didn't know how to play in a structured way where we could have fun because things would prog- could progress from the beginning, a middle to an end. And I was organizing sets of rules for for my friends and I to have fun with whether it was with toys or inventing sports or things like that, just as we, we were growing up and trying to to to, uh, uh, to to enjoy ourselves with whatever we were into. And uh, as I grew up older, uh, in my teenage years, I was big, like one of my favorite series is uh, Gabrielle Knight, uh, especially the first one, The Sins of the Fathers. And uh, I was a, uh, a big fan of Sierra uh, Sierra Online games and stuff like that. And I was, oh man, like, I wish I could be a game designer, creative director, whatever the role. But the funny part is that most of the companies, at least the ones I knew, uh, they were American and I didn't speak English at all. I'm, I'm French uh, Canadian. So, and my English was like uh, zero to none. And I was like, there's no way I will ever work in games. So I continued to study in uh, sociology in university. And then uh, I, I did a diploma in, uh, also in computer arts, uh, mainly for uh, pre-printing kind of magazines and Photoshop and all these, these kind of things. And uh, there's a small company called Ubisoft that uh, we heard in the news that they were installing themselves in Montreal. And it's a French company. And I was like, Oh, like, is it real? And I, I remember to this day writing a letter of motivation to, to, to join the, the game industry without any uh, scholarship in that field or any uh, experience. And I was like, before starting to think about being a game designer or something like that, I need to, to, to get in the biz, like maybe QA, something like that, so I can learn and progress and maybe have a chance to to to, to move up uh, the ladder. And I, I wrote that motivation letter. And when I, I'm finished with that motivation letter, I reread myself and I start to laugh. I'm like, it, it's, it's going to be one out of two things. 
it's either they will think I'm crazy and they will toss it away or they will go, okay, this guy's passionate. Let's give him a chance. And that's how it started. <laughs> that's, so what was the position you joined at? Uh, I started as a QA, a tester. Oh, wow. And uh, it's funny back then, like we're talking in the late 90s uh, as a QA. After a week, my boss said, you're going to be the lead QA for this, this project. And I'm like, okay. I have no experience of managing people or even like I'm figuring out QA. And two months in, I'm offered my first uh, gig as lead game designer on a Formula One racing game. And I was like, do you like racing games? I, I think they could have said anything and the answer would have been yes. <laughs> and I, I fell in love with it and I started my, my journey as a game designer and, and uh, eventually becoming creative director uh, for, for, for several years now. And uh, yeah, that's all, all it started. So, so one more question about creative directors. It, when yeah. people say, I want to be a creative director, what are a couple of things you think they should know up front? <laughs> well, um, your ego and what you think and your ideas don't matter <laughs> as one. much as you think. Okay. Uh, and uh, a bit like writing, uh, like with uh, Mary said, uh, it's a question of like uh, collaboration and understanding that you're not there to find the answers to everything, but you're there to make sure that you steer the boat to the right destination like because sometimes on the water a boat will go left right and if we let it slide too much to the left too much to the right i mean you have a lot of experience yourself you know that if we let that happen games go in all directions and they never end or they end up being average to mediocre games and we cannot uh, let that happen so i would say that the for me one of the biggest skill it's to understand the destination make sure we stay on that target while remaining flexible and including uh, all the people, talent and creativity in the mix. Like it's not about you. It's about that energy that comes from the team. That's a great description. Yeah. I love it. I hope, I hope many prospective creative directors are listening carefully uh, <laughs> to do that. So you both teamed up on a fantastic game, Guardians of the Galaxy. And so I want to talk a little bit about or ask you some questions about just the beginnings. So how did the opportunity to create the game come up in the first place? With David, our boss. Uh, I know he was pursuing that dream of uh, uh, working with a big partner like Marvel and everything. And uh, eventually he approached us, uh, Mary, myself, and a few other people and said, like, uh, we have a chance to collaborate with Marvel. And he asked us, like, with the franchises within Marvel, like what we would love the best. And he already had this idea, but our idea was similar. We were like, we felt that Guardians of the Galaxy was, uh, was a team of uh, underdogs that, uh, that was fitting our personalities, was fitting our studio in some ways as well. Because I guess like every time when we were working on DSX, like, nah, there's no chance they were going to make a good DSX and armed guardians. Oh, there's no chance that the guardians will be good. So we, we feel like we're a bit uh, those, those kind of uh, underdogs. So we started with, uh, with that franchise uh, and we got, we got in it and got excited by, by the, the, all the possibilities with it. Well, when you made that decision to pursue guardians or start working on guardians how did how did your initial brainstorming happen what how do you all do it there read books <laughs> <laughs> read tons and tons of it's, comic books 
Um, I think one of the first philosophies um, that we have as a team and definitely that JF as our creative director has instilled in us is if you're going to work on something, you need to know the essence of what you're dealing with. And the first way to know the essence, especially for, you know, this, this huge topic of the Guardians of the Galaxy is to dive into the comic books, read a lot of comic books, watch movies watch the Guardians movies, but watch other movies as well um, and play games and start thinking and letting letting the understanding of that that group settle into our bones, so to speak, um, mm-hmm. so that we can then start figuring out what the heck are we going to do with this. And, and I think uh, with what you just said, Mary, uh, uh, one of the thing we do is we, we set the core values. What are the core values of the Guardians? Or even when we were working on DSX, what are the core values that makes it DSX? Uh, and even before starting to have ideas and start to design, uh, for me, it's super important that you have a key and a profound understanding of the material you're going to play with. Because to it's a bit, like, I guess, like art. Before you break rules in art, you need to understand art. And and it's a bit like that for me too. It's like you need to to become like uh, maybe not like the the, the biggest expert on, on earth on the subject, but you need to to have a strong understanding of what you're playing with and what are, what is the core essence of that. And if you understand what it is through different words or key key sentences and, and, and things like that, then now when you start to brainstorm, you understand what you're trying to tap into. You, you understand what you're trying to achieve. Uh, and even like uh, the vision for Guardians of the Galaxy, it was, uh, if I remember well, it was uh, boiled down to six words for what the game should taste like. I think it was fun, fast, and focused, and it was daring, dangerous, and deep. That's it. (laughs) And I had a slide on PowerPoint. This is the vision for the game. (laughs) And in the end, it's funny, in the last few weeks before, uh, before it came out, we were playing the game, and I was with my gameplay director, and we were like... Let's go back to our six words that we forgot from years ago. And like, is it fast? Yeah, it's kind of fast. Yeah, is it fun? Well, maybe I'm uh, biased, but it sounds like it's fun, you know? Uh, is it focus? Yeah, it's not like we're not trying to do 3,000 things. We're doing this big uh, story-driven adventure, and we focus on it. Is it daring? Yeah, we made some choices on that game that some some players were like at, at, at the beginning, like WTF, <laughs> what the hell is that? Why did you go in that direction? Um and the game is, uh, I think, has uh, big themes. Like there's a lot of humor, but there's also a lot of drama, and uh, there's a lot of uh, um, things like that. So we were like, okay, we, we pretty much like kind of hit on those uh, key keywords. So we we always all that to say uh, that that little story to to say that we're, we the keywords, key sentences to ex to explain the essence of the franchise or to explain what we're trying to achieve as a team is super key for me because after that when you you work with people like we were saying initially uh, uh, it's a collaborative effort uh, ideas come from the team as well you you need to understand your 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 the, your direction very thoroughly because when people come with ideas it can be sometimes those are great ideas and it can be very um 
tempting to embrace them. But if they don't fit in in what you establish in the first place, it could be a, a, a cause to make your, your boat go adrift instead of staying focused on the destination. So you have to have that. And if, like, we don't embrace an idea, there's a reason behind it. It's not because I'm the creative director, I don't like your idea, I don't care. That's not how I work. It's no, there's a reason why we're not going in that direction because it doesn't tap into what we're trying to achieve here. So your idea is great, but maybe it's not for that direction. So that's the kind of mindset behind all of that. Totally makes sense. I love the fact that you also use alliteration for your, for your, uh, for your core values. That's, that makes it easy to remember. I was very happy with that. Yes. <laughs> That's that's cool. I, I also want to share that, you know, I, I told our creative director on Spider-Man, Brian Intihar, and our uh, our story director, John Paquette, that I was talking to both of you. And I, they have questions. They gave me some questions that they wanted me to ask. And Mary, you mentioned the research that the team and you did uh, reading comic books, watching the movies, et cetera. So how did you go about balancing what people loved about the movies, what people love from the comics and your own spin on the franchise. And Brian, Brian asked me to share this question with you because it's one of the things that we had to, we struggled with. So, or we didn't struggle with it, but it was one of the challenges that we had in front of us. So how did you tackle that? Um, I think it was by, like I said, by reading all the comics, you get a sense. One thing that was fascinating for me is that I knew the characters in the movie and there are certain very strong tentpole things about those characters that we know that we need to keep. Like Drax is very literal in the movies um, and that's how people know him. So we knew we needed that. But when you were reading the comics, we were seeing different interpretations within Marvel itself. And we started to see, well, Drax is actually very much a tactician in the games. He's much more, than, than what we're seeing in the movies. And we started kind of picking and choosing what we liked about them ourselves. Um, one of the things that I often try and do when I'm developing characters from an original standpoint is I try and figure out what are their core character traits. And I try to come up with four of them and make them all balanced. And even though these characters are established, I kind of went and retro did it and said, okay, what are those four characteristics for each of them? And so that kind of helped give us a good sense of, of what was the, the core, the essence of this character and where we could then start expanding it into our universe to play with it. Once it was that, it, it then continues to develop because then you're bringing on, I'm bringing on a group of writers. I work with a lot of writers and they all kind of by talking with each other, they have their versions of the characters. And then it, it, but we all kind of agree on who these characters are and what is their story in our universe. And then we go from there. And um, my role on the project is to make sure with all these diverse writers that, that they're getting in what they, their views there, whatever, but they're staying true and that the voice sounds like one. That does sound like a constant balancing act. It is. And one of the ways that we managed to do it um, within the writing team is we would every Friday we would have script reads um, for like two hours. I think, you know, there's like the standard studio beer time and it's like, OK, let's grab the beers and let's go for two hours in a conference room and, and let's read each other's scripts. And and we acted out the characters ourselves as we're doing it. The big rule is whoever wrote it cannot read their script. They have to hear everyone else read it out loud. And I think by doing that every Friday, it 
it kind of got everyone laughing and joking, talking about these characters and basically embracing them for who they are. And that kind of helped a lot in maintaining a consistency across all of the scripts. What a great technique. That sounds like a lot of fun. It was. It was a lot of fun. Eventually, eventually, as the actors were involved, if they were shooting at the studio on a Friday, we're like, and they were done, we were like, hey, guys, come and join. And then the actors would actually come and read these first draft scripts that would eventually change. But then it was always fun because then we got to hear the actors doing it instead of us doing, you know, our terrible impression of Mantis or whatever. Um, So it was it, it ended up being a lot of fun. And we also would invite anyone from the team who wanted to be a part of it. Because I think it's very important to share that among everyone in the in the production. Oh, that's that's awesome. Well, and I, I do have a lot of questions about the the characters themselves coming up. But I, before going there, I wanted to share another question that Brian Indar asked me. He he pointed out that when we started working with Marvel on Spider Man, we knew that if we don't nail swinging in the game, nothing else in gameplay matters. So was there one thing that your team felt like it had to really deliver on the Guardians experience? Yes. <laughs> it, the interaction between the characters, that, that, that dynamic between all of them. And uh, because uh, the fantasy we had in mind is like, because you play Star-Lord, it was like to hang out with the Guardians. And you needed to feel that you were hanging out with them at any given time, that they would feel alive, that you will constantly feel their presence around you. So since the beginning, when we, we decided on the direction, it was it was that thing. And the, as Mary was saying, like developing the characters and starting to develop the, the scripts and everything, it was always about making sure that the Guardians are always part of the scene. Like it's not just Star Lord and a character, but it's no, it's the five characters. Mm-hmm. When you're in traversal, having those four characters around you in in combat as well, like in other different situations in the game. So those were the core aspect, like that we needed to. You play a slice of this, and it, it feels like a Guardians of the Galaxy game, not a Peter Quill game, mm-hmm. and it feels like the the relationship and the dynamic between the team. Is, is constantly there and palpable. So that was the thing. That was our web slide, uh, sliding. It, it really comes through. And I, I got to say kudos on the main characters. I mean, they to me, and Mary, you've already alluded to this, they, they really stood apart from their mover counterparts without being totally different or alien. It was almost like, to me, at least you were sort of in this parallel universe where you, you saw them, you, you could see you know, variations of them. And in particular, Drax, wow. Drax was fantastic. I mean, he was my favorite character. He was consistently awesome. And I thought Quill yes. was also constantly likable without being cheesy. So, you know, because I think that's an easy trap to fall into for any character, right? When, you, when you, you're talking about humor. So with all of that in mind, did you set any explicit goals for the dialogue up front? Um, not necessarily, not, not consciously. Um, I think one of the big concerns that I had going into the project was, we have to be funny. Oh my God, how are we going to be funny? Um, and that was like the most terrifying thing from my perspective. Um, and so, but in handling that, we just knew, well, the humor of these characters is going to come from them being insanely dedicated to who they are. Um, they're just always going to be who they are regardless. And so nailing that and nailing who these characters were, I think helped us to get the funny in there, get the humor in there and stuff. Um, 
So that was it. And uh, other than that, it was always, well, I think we always had to make sure there were a couple things that we had to keep in mind. We had to keep in mind, don't always make, we don't want Gamora to be murder mom. So, you know, because you got a whole bunch of these misbehaving boys. I mean, Rocket is pretty, you know, Rocket's always Rocket and Drax is always literal and, and Groot is always indecipherable as I am Groot. And you don't want to always have Gamora being the one who's saying, guys, we got to do this, I got, or Peter, you know. And so we had to find a balance for her wasn't a big one. And another big rule that I always had to the writers was if you're writing Groot in, you have to, in parentheticals, say what he is actually saying. And Rocket's line has to give you an understanding of that, which was often one thing I was always catching them on because a lot of times you throw an I'm Groot and then he was like, yeah, but what did he say? I have no idea what he said. So make sure that Rocket's answer is translating him without translating him. I, you know, I, I will say I really liked how you did that in the game because I felt like I was always kind of expecting a player, uh, sorry, one of the characters to help me understand what Groot was saying. But you, I thought you did it in a way that didn't feel, ever feel on the nose. There was a lot of nuance that the other characters imparted to what Groot was saying. And it always kind of matched sort of Groot's inflections well. So yeah. that was that was super cool. And, but and I actually think the actor who played, Robert Montcalm, who plays Groot, did an amazing job as well because he told me afterwards, he was like, having the parentheticals really, really helped me because now I know what I'm supposed to be saying. And I can get that across through my body language and through my facial expressions and through how I am saying I am Groot. And it really does work. I mean, when there are many times I've seen people play the game streamers and they're like, I swear he's saying this right now. I don't care. This is what he's saying. <laughs> and it works. It really worked. That's cool. Well, you mentioned humor and, and uh, I, I want to dig into that a little bit. What, how do you determine if something is really funny or if it's falling flat, especially if you're the writer, if one is the writer of the line? Uh, well, I think our, I think our script reads helped a lot in that. Um, I think the constant uh, going back with with our review process, like the writer writers would write scripts. Um, they might be seeking from the other writers advice and stuff, and they might get jokes from the like they might throw out a joke, and then another writer would say, "Oh, that's funny, but try this." And then there was a lot of that, and then it would come to me, and I'd be looking at it. And so sometimes you just know because you're reading it, and you just I would be caught. I would just like laugh out loud at a line it was so unexpected um but it is it is this constant thing that you're just you're never 100 sure especially when you're hearing it again and again and again um so some of it is just hope <laughs> and some of it is the talent of the writers yeah. um they, they're phenomenal and i think also uh, when it came about the humor is even us as a team when we understood that uh, uh, because the first few scripts to try to find the voice, sometimes like jokes were forced in. And um, with the jokes being forced in, it, it didn't necessarily work super well. And and we said, like like Mary was describing, like we, we come for the, with traits for all the characters. But even one other thing that Mary does uh, with the group and everything uh, that she didn't speak about, it's like, what this character like or dislike about this other character, and what is this? What what are the the mm. the, the things that uh, 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 makes certain characters closer or more distant, and all those uh, points of tension or or closeness, and 
And the first few scripts were maybe a little bit too forced, but we were just trying to figure out the voice uh, of all those characters. And what happened is like, no, the humor, they're not trying to be funny. They are themselves. They're, they're just being who they are at 100%. And, and when they're facing different situations, they, they will have a reaction that is genuine to their core. And this is, and since there are very eclectic characters from different backgrounds and different ideals or, or, or thoughts or experiences in life, then that makes uh, the, 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 the clash or the fun comes from them just staying true to who they are, no matter what the situation is, no matter if it's a light situation or a very heavy situation, they just, they're just genuine. And they're very different. So the humor comes a lot from that. And when, once as a team and the writers and everybody in the team started to understand it better that, oh, we need to embrace it and that, from that point of view, things started to come way more naturally as opposed as, oh, we need to be funny here. And it's funny because after getting that and starting to, reviews, uh, to review a lot of scripts. And sometimes uh, Mary and I, we would discuss when we were reviewing the scripts and I was saying to Mary, okay, here, we still try to force a joke. It doesn't work. Like, mm-hmm. let's play it naturally. And Mary, she, yeah, yeah, I agree. And then, then she was talking with the writers and then we were tweaking and iterating and everything. But it, it, it came from that place. Just let go and let the character be themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're not trying to be smart asses. No. They're not trying to wisecrack. They're just literally saying what they think and not recognizing how what they are saying can be interpreted by others. Um, and, and that ultimately is the key to it. That's a great approach. I didn't, I mean, now that you're saying that, it makes a lot of sense. I didn't, I wasn't thinking that when I was playing. I was just sort of in the moment. Uh, but that's a great technique. And it, it leads to a question, another question that I got from John Paget, who's our story director on Spider-Man. He, he pointed out that the banner during gameplay is fantastic and it felt fun. It didn't impinge on the experience. And he wanted to, to ask you, you know, how much rewriting did you all do in order to get to that level of polish that you, know, you feel when you're playing and all four characters are talking and they're not, they're not stepping on each other, what they're saying actually fits together like a really clever puzzle. Now, did that take a long time, a lot of tries? Well, it's it's a process that actually is more than just the writing. So yes, we did write multiple drafts of scripts. Um, we implement those scripts immediately through text-to-speech in the game. Mm-hmm. So like the sooner we can get it in and see how it's sounding, even though you're hearing the terrible robot voices, um, you're getting a sense of it. Um, then we are rewriting and, and fixing the wave files and getting them back in and doing that as we're developing it. So we went through multiple iterations of the scripts. Then we record and then we have to adjust everything because the recording length doesn't necessarily fit either. And then it goes all the way into the final well after the writers are most of the writers are off the projects. We had what we called uh, we called it a local banter team. So it was the team in charge of making sure that the move, you know, the characters moving through through the game were animating correctly and were speaking and were doing the placement, like Drax might go over the vending machine. They're doing all that, but they were also one. My lead writer was was heavily involved in that group, and they were then even editing with the wave files we had, not changing a wave file, but like we might have had a six line joke, 
And it's like, you know what, this doesn't work. So we're tightening it up even as he's seeing the experience in game and potentially even discovering, oh, shoot, we need something else. And we're searching through all those those way files to find the great reaction from some from Peter or from whoever that can fill a space perfectly. So a lot of it was really crafted. It was just the real crafting of it um, that that kind of just constantly fine tuning as we go. Yeah. Well, that's, that's cool to hear. And that sort of leads to a big topic and that's the, the combination of design and story, right? That seems so important for, for any narrative game today. So going back to the very beginning of the production, how do you approach macro design and story? Do you do one and before the other? Do you, how do you, how do you make that all work? Well, it's uh, we, we, we have several things. Uh, once we know a bit what is the game fantasy or the, the player fantasy we're going for and uh, what kind of uh, experience we have in mind. So we start the design in terms of how certain of the mechanics are going to work together. But in parallel, we're going to start to work on uh, the story. And the story we're trying to really flesh out high level uh what is the the adventure? What's at stake? And uh, what are the guardians are fighting? And uh, the big drama. And then eventually we, we develop a skeleton for it with story beats. Uh, and then uh, we go in a big uh, process that we call the blueprint. And uh, that process, we, we sit in a room for two or three months, depending on the scope of the game or the, the challenges that come with what we're doing. And basically, we're trying to give life to the skeleton of, uh, of the story. We know that, okay, this is the, the, the starting point. This is the uh, initial incident, like in our case, releasing uh, the entity at the beginning in the quarantine zone, like there. at that time, you don't know it's the Magus, but, but you, 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 you unleash it. So we, we build the, 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 the adventure that leads to that, where, okay, what are the goals here? Well, it's the beginning of the game. You need to get the gist of like using your guns, Peter, and then you need to understand the Guardian's request system uh, with Rocket, with Groot, and progressively, and boom, 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 boom. And then, okay, next chapter, what is it about? Okay, it's the everyday in the Guardian's life. Okay, what does it mean? So we create an adventure with that, like the monster that they have to sell to Lady Elbender. So basically what we have, we have a big Excel sheet in which like we go... What is the story goal? What is the gameplay? What are the gameplay goals here? Uh, all these things. And boom, boom. So we put it in the Excel sheet and we build like block one of gameplay. Peter goes into, uh, I don't know, like he opens the box uh, on the Meredith's bed. Okay, boom, that's that. What's in this room? What's the show don't tell? What are these things? What are the anima animations? Is there music? Is there not? And, and we have a massive Excel sheet from the entire game from start to finish on paper. So now we can give it to the production team and they can look at it and scope from what they understand from that. Oh, I think uh, too much, too many environments to this or to that. And we can already readjust the, the, the scope without having to cut an entire level that has not been built yet. So, so, <laughs> so it, it's cost uh, efficient in, in that respect. And, um, Eventually, when that is solid, uh, I worked with a uh, storyboard artist and we did a version of the blueprint that was 
all drawings for the entire game and I was putting it in a PowerPoint with links for choices and consequences. So you could play it on paper and decide you sell Groot or Rocket and you click and it was leading you to the next vignettes of drawings that what was the adventure if you, you sold Groot or if you sold Rocket and stuff like that. And then I was presenting it to the team. I flew to Marvel uh, in, in LA to present. I think I presented to Bill and Eric like for over six hours and one day the entire adventure on paper and i said that's what we're going to build yay or nay (laughs) and what i love about the blueprint process um the initial excel sheet it's like up until then you've got a story um because we've worked out story beats we've worked out the plot we we have our main beats and and we know the characters and everything but it's a story told from a storyteller's point of view the, the blueprint turns it into a game that is being experienced through a player's experience of it. So you would find things like, like yes, I had no idea that we were going to throw in, like in my initial story, I didn't know that we were going to throw in the telephone gameplay of trying to get the world mind its attention. I just knew that we're going to go see the world mind and we have to somehow convince the world mind to hear us out. Um, but the, the get the blueprint turned around and made it into an actual game that is experienced through the player. Um, of course that Excel sheet, a lot of people look at it and they're like, what? <laughs> and they're like, you want, huh? And so what I think, and we've had the blueprints on the Deus Ex games before. Um, but this was the first time with JF coming up with the illustrated blueprint that made a huge difference to the team, I think, because finally most people, they're like, yeah, yeah, blueprint, blueprint, whatever. I don't want to look at it. I don't want to deal with it. Only the people who needed to scope really understood it, but this made the game understandable to everybody on the team. That sounds great. Cool, cool concept and approach. So Jean-Francois and, and Mary, you both talked about a little bit about scope. You both mentioned scope a bit. And once you're going in production, how often do you reevaluate scope? <laughs> it feels like all the time. <laughs> uh, we we uh, reevaluate the scope uh, as needed. And uh, like Mary said, like it, oftentimes because like there are the estimates there's the actual work <laughs> and there's always a, a discrepancy between the estimates and the actual work. Sometimes uh, we uh, overestimate the time it will take for sometimes and a lot of time we underestimate or sometimes we we stumble into issues that we didn't uh, foresee and now oh, suddenly now you have to have different discussions, different conversations. And sometimes too, is especially when we're in the, 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 the middle of production, like like we all know, we're all stressed. We have like 3,000 things to manage at once. And, and sometimes some people get anxious more than others easily. And some like, there's no way we can we can do that. We need to cut. And sometimes you have to, to keep yourself very cold and analyze the situation. Like, am I in face of something that needs to be cut? Or it's more someone that right now is nervous because there's a lot and maybe there's support that is needed instead of cutting and things like that. So you go through all these things uh, uh, in order in, uh, or in disorder. And uh, But there are some times we, we go, for example, um, uh, there's one scene um, 
we build uh, when the guardians uh, go uh, visit the lady hellbender uh, to sell Groot and Rocket. At the end, like no matter what you do, you 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 have to defeat the dweller in darkness. And and the guardians jump on the hover bikes, and boom, the cutscene. They get to the Milano, and hey, they 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 go away. That hover bike scene was playable from start to finish with monsters running after you and Lady Elbender and you had to avoid stuff and everything. And we had a prototype of it that was not as advanced as we love to. Uh, when came the time, you know what? Uh, some of uh, our production managers and said, JF, like, uh, if we do that, like, there's... Uh, a shitload of other things that we won't be able to pull off. So this one, like, it doesn't look good. And with Mary and other people, we discuss it. But the, the beauty with the blueprint we were talking about, and now with the illustrated blueprint, it makes the game so tangible on, on paper that when it's time to cut, it's it's not that it's easy to cut, but because you have a clear understanding of what you're trying to achieve, you're able to pinpoint the places that, oh my God, this is, it's great, but the story and the game experience works without it. And we can have the discussion, it opens the discussion up with the manager. So if I cut this, like, am I helping you to finish other things? Yes, or it's enough, uh, or it would be perfect, or it's not enough, or da 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 da. And we go like that. So, and we're able, uh, our goal is always, we always said, like, uh, even on the human revolution, Mary and I, at some point, the managers tells us uh, uh, you need to cut 25% of the game scope. And we're like, I want to scream, but you take a, <laughs> a, a, a deep breath. And, and we went in the room with Mary uh, and, and we look at what we had. And it, it, it's, it's, it's funny because uh, the cuts we made on Human Revolution, when the final game came out, it doesn't show at all. And moreover, when we did the missing link, the, the DLC that came with it, because it was connecting so well with what we cur- we already built, players were convinced that we cut it from the main game, which was not true at all. Like we came with that story uh, late uh, in the di- uh, development cycle of uh, Human Revolution. It was almost finished when we came up with that idea. And it's just that because we have that blueprint, it gives us a great understanding of what we're, 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 we're making. And the same with Guardian. So... There are, there are few cuts in Guardians, but when you play the game, you don't feel them because we we make sure to to work pieces out that will help the production in a way that maintains the integrity of what we're working on. But if we didn't have that, that process that we talked at length, it would be harder because we wouldn't have the same deep understanding of what we're trying to build. And probably we could make cuts that on the moment would feel right, but later down, Mary and I and some other would go, oh my God, like we didn't think about this or that. And now suddenly we would have a bigger problem to manage. That makes sense. And I, <laughs> <laughs> so for, I guess really for both of you, because you know, scoping is a part of every production today, given how big the games are that everybody's making, you know, how do you allay fears that the game isn't going to get done or something is, is just too difficult. What are some of the techniques that you as leaders use to help your team see things differently? That's a really good question. (laughs) 
sometimes I think I'm still learning how how to deal with that and how to uh, manage because a lot of it is, I think it comes back to something JF is saying is that understanding where the anxiety is coming from for the individual. Um, and so sometimes it's a matter of saying, guys, you know, you've got to, you've got to trust me. You've got to trust us. Sometimes it's a matter of directing them like forewarning sometimes, like what was great with the blueprint was we could see ahead that certain things might be difficult. So I was able to kind of focus the writing team on that and say, guys, okay, look, that's what we're doing. Um, what could happen if we have to cut it? you know, or, or how, what are the solutions and things and then getting them working as a team already ahead of time to expect it. Um, sometimes that helps. Um, other than that, it, it is, it's a constant day to day, you know, individual to individual struggle to, to make sure everyone is, is their morale stays high, that they're passionate and dedicated to this and that you can, you can, kind of alleviate and, and and also a lot of it comes down to the basic thing is we don't know. We don't know. We're just hoping. We're crossing our fingers and hoping and and you have to kind of get that across too and say, you know, it's okay if 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 it comes to it, we'll figure out a solution. Don't worry about it right now. Just focus on what's in front of you. And, and I think another thing, it's very early in the project is uh from my perspective, one of my beliefs is that I cannot look you in the eye and sell you a game that I don't believe I can pull off. <laughs> it's as simple as that. It, it, it's If it's too ambitious, if it's too crazy, if it, it, it goes beyond, even me, I won't believe in it. So if I don't believe in it, how am I supposed to ask a big team to believe in it? It's impossible. But if I believe it can be pulled off, and when I see being, uh, I believe it can be pulled off, I'm not talking about staying in the comfort zone. I'm talking about being ambitious over the line of comfort zone because I believe we do our best work when we're scared. If we're not scared, we're, we're getting lazy. And, and so it's a fine line between putting yourself in danger, but in danger, a danger that is manageable. And the danger that when we uh, meet or we face hurdles with the team, you don't just say figure it out. You go and you sit down with the people and you figure it out together. It's not their problem. It's our problem as a team. And But I believe we can achieve it. I think we can do it together. And and uh, with we have a little bit of experience and everything. So it helps us sometimes, like Mary was saying, that uh, some situations are very reminiscent to different situations in the past that we had to manage. And sometimes like uh, what was true back then is still true today. So you develop little tricks or, or sometimes you just breathe when it, it's not time to panic. We just have to look at these things coldly uh, and, and, and go forward. But uh, I think that the, the key is really example, Guardians of the Galaxy, when I went uh, to present the game in front of my upper management, and then when I went to Marvel to present it, if I didn't believe we could pull it off, if I didn't believe it was exciting, if I didn't believe uh, it was uh, ticking the boxes that uh, we believe it, it, it was, uh, 
I wouldn't be presenting it. We would still be working on it until we get to that point. So, so we need to be careful between like, especially early in your career, when we start as designers, we want to do everything and we're, oh my God, that's going to be great, 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 great. And then life happens, you meet walls, like uh, you, you, you understand a lot of, of things are early on in your career and oh, I'm overtly ambitious here, overtly ambitious there. So, so now we're, we're able to, to do that, especially with the processes that we have that gives us a comfort in what we're, we're building. And the way we build it, it gives us the flexibility if we went still a bit overboard to pull back a bit without compromising uh, the, the, the game. So I would say it's all those things, but it starts with you believing that you can pull it off. Well, that's a sounds like a fantastic philosophy and I'm sure it comes through in all the presentations you have to make, right? Because you're, you're convincing team members, yes. stakeholders, Marvel, uh, I mean, and so one of the key components that I had a lot of have a lot of questions about just in terms of how you presented it was combat, because mm-hmm. you know, four player, four character combat in a high action game is a, it's a lot to pull off. <laughs> yeah. So did your vision for combat evolve as from from beginning to the end? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. It was, uh, uh, I mean, the the high level philosophy never changed in the sense we wanted to make you feel as the player that uh, you were using your guardians in combat while they were autonomous at the same time. And most importantly, still feel alive, not just, it's not like stories happening. Oh, here's gameplay mechanics, uh, screw the story, story will come back later. No, it needed to continue. So all these things from the beginning, those were clear and that never changed. It just took us many years to <laughs> to make it happen and, and find the, the real fun in that. But uh, uh, at the beginning, uh, Peter was supposed to be more cover-based, shooting from afar. Uh, Guardians, as you were sending them with the request system, you were seeing Drax run on the battlefield to go to the enemy. But since the battlefield evolves quite fast, by the time that Drax gets, let's say, to the enemy, you pointed out, maybe Gamora already killed that enemy or or you did as a player. And now Drax was there like doing nothing, not knowing where to go or what to do and, and, and stuff like that. And we were like, oh my God, like, it's not gelling. It's not this, it's not that. Then uh, eventually we said, we need to teleport the characters so they can instantly do their things. And then, ah, oh, but we need to hide the, hide the, those uh, those pop-ups of Drax's ears disappears and then appears there. It's so ugly. So now we have those mini kind of cinematics where you see Drax in action doing his thing and it was hiding the teleportation. But again, it gets repetitive. It gets the same thing over and over again. It pulls you out of the action and stuff like that. And um, one day, I think it's one of the designers, I can't remember exactly, but uh, someone in the team decided to remove those vignettes because uh, it was controversial in the team. And we were, no, it's there for a reason. And, and then one day, I'm playing the build and the vignettes are gone, but me, I'm playing like usual. And I don't like blink or anything and play. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. Like uh, now Drax does this. And that, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then wait a second, something's missing. The vignettes are gone and the characters are just popping from 
one position to the next position for the, their attacks. And suddenly, like what we thought was a big deal that, oh no, we cannot let, uh, uh, leave that like that because it will be ugly. No, nobody cares. Nobody realizes it. And what you need, and, and even when you have experience, sometimes you, f- you fall in those traps, like thinking, oh, it won't be pretty. It won't be realistic and everything. No, players, when they press the button, they want, they want the action to, to do what it has to do right now. In the moment, and it's so simple. Every and everybody will go, yeah, of course, it's like that. But sometimes, when you're in the creative process of building something that doesn't really exist like the way you envision it, sometimes you 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 get trapped in those kind of train of thoughts that don't bring you where it needs to bring you. So, it, we we went through many iterations like that uh until like we freed ourselves yes gamora jumps super high in the sky she slashes the enemy oh it looks cool it's this it's fun it's more like uh, it's more in the marvel kind of like a spectacle and everything and us coming from DSX where everything has to be justified and realistic or at least believable and everything like a part was discovering the fun for the, the combat with those four, uh, five characters. And the other part was us deprogramming ourselves from what we did for a decade. And those, all those things uh, were part of the equation. Um, the other thing it was, how do we create a sense that even when you're not uh, asking guardians to do things on the battlefield, how do they feel as they battle? Like, do they feel alive? Do uh, they need to have choreography? Like, we we needed to build the AI systems and bubbles in which, like, you have a bubble enemies and let's say with Gamora, what makes her go to the next bubble of enemies or 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 things like that. We had many uh, uh, systems that sometimes a part of the system was making the game suck basically and sometimes it's just like readjust how those systems speak to each other that now we were finding the balance where okay Gamora goes there she stays with those enemies for a while and if there's not uh, too much threat there then she can go to the next bubble but also it depends with what the player does if the player stands back or does does the player attract the aggro or not uh, and we had to build uh, in also things like if you stay engaged with your guardians, they will be more efficient. They will stay alive longer. If you, you pull back and you stay afar and you don't get engaged as much, they will fall on their knees more easily and everything. And we also had to adjust like the range of shooting to make to, to make sure that players stay within a certain range for efficiency and being engaged with the guardians. But like today, we have a list of all these things that we could send to you guys and go, hey, here's that, 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 that. But like all the all the years it took us to figure out all those little details. And after that, the voiceover work, like uh, you were talking about the local banter, uh, all the chat that they have uh, as they walk, but also all the things they say during combat that speaks to feedback to the player, but also continue to make the story continue so to speak like make it feel that the story is still alive like it didn't it didn't stop abruptly and when all those pieces came together okay now so we we add something like is it perfect no is it still chaotic a bit absolutely 
but we found the recipe and we were like, okay, now we, we have solid foundations. Well, it is absolutely unique. I mean, it was, I, I wasn't expecting to have such, you know, uh, that approach when I started the game, you know, being able to tell all my, my buddies what to do. And I, I agree that what you ended up with in terms of the instantaneous nature of seeing your partners carry out attacks was great. I mean, from a gameplay perspective, it felt really good, but I also, Mary, I want to just give kudos to you and your team. That combat dialogue is really, really helpful. I mean, in terms of letting you know what's going on and what you need to think about, it was great. I mean, really well thought out. And not repetitive, not repetitive. Yeah. That was the other big, big plus. It does get repetitive at some points, unfortunately. And that's just a matter of not enough variation. Um, but there were, it, it, getting that banter right, it was a combination of different systems because you're dealing with the systems that um, are telling you, you know, the typical bark system where it's like they're giving you the feedback, but we're also building in this, this little banter system where, where we would write custom lines from from one character and have like callouts for every single character, so the system could randomly put those dialogues together, and we would have to make those banter's. We'd always so every single fight drew on a pool of systemic dialogues that lasted through the whole game, and maybe at some of the later fights we could we could pull out some of the barks and add new ones just to help with the progression of the story. But also every every fight had to have custom banter because the custom banter between them was important to keep you in the story and to keep you, you know, knowing that who are they fighting at this time, what is their thought pattern against the 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 store in the story at this time and how is it going? Um, so it was it was a bit crazy on that side uh, for us to write it all, but. Um, and that's why, yeah, I mean, I think it does add so much to the combat. Um, you always wish you could tweak a little more. You always wish you could do a little bit more um, so that you don't constantly hear. But also, like, I think one of the fun things that we discovered through that is is one of the character traits of Gamora. Because when we were writing those barks for her, the writer who was writing them was was kind of giving her bad puns, you know. And it was like, these are bad they're really that nice to see you and stuff like that and it's like but you know what maybe that's that's a huge part of her story and then when we discovered that we were then able to write that into some of the dialogues you can have with her to discover why she tells bad puns and and how it became a competition between her and nebula in their past um, in order to kind of distance themselves from the murders they were doing um so even that, it all just kind of fed each other. That's, that's well, you, you, since you mentioned lines of dialogue, I remember, I'm sure you remember the days when we were writing a thousand lines of dialogue for a game. So how, can I ask how many lines of dialogue exist in this game? You can ask, and if I could remember, I would tell you, <laughs> <laughs> but I just know it's, it's huge. It's like, uh, I mean, it's no joke. They never stop talking. It, it's way, it's way over 200,000. Wow, <laughs> that's impressive. It, 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 it's crazy. Yeah, the the, the 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 scripts we reviewed, like the the Bibles, were thick, and uh, we were spending days just reviewing text. And it's funny because that there was so much that once it was recorded and integrated in game, sometimes there were months in between the review and that happening, 
and we were discovering those lines in the game, not remembering we reviewed it. And we were starting to laugh at, oh my God, that's crazy. Like feeling like you hear it for the first time. That, that was quite a, it was quite something. Wow. That actually happened to me when I replayed the game recently. I'm like playing it and I'm like, wait, did I approve that joke? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I can't believe I approved that joke. And, and just forgetting that certain things were in there. Large. Well, I, one of my, one of my favorite parts, I'm sure I've seen this in reviews and other, and player comments. One of my favorite parts about combat is the huddle. When you, when you trigger huddles, it's super cool. So when did that come in as a concept during production? Um, it's um, at the beginning after, uh, when we start the conception for the game, uh, early on, like Mary was saying, reading a lot of books and uh, we get like uh, acquainted with the source material and the core values. Blah, blah, blah. And uh, once we have uh, a fairly good, fairly good understanding of where we go with the game, we start to brainstorm, uh, okay, but as a player, what do you do? And with the guardians and like, what are the abilities? And, and we go with post-its on the wall and everything. And, and one day, remember, I wrote Huddle. And I said, somehow, like American football, I would see like the five guardians come together for some sort of reason. But I had no clue whatsoever what that meant. And we put that sticker on the wall and my gameplay director and I, I was like, there's something with the huddle. We need to, to, to pursue it. And my gameplay director was like, I hear you, JF, like, but right now I have no flarking idea <laughs> what to do with it. And as we started to develop the, the, the combat system and uh, the, the, the interaction or the dynamic between the AI characters and the player characters and all the things we talked a bit uh, about earlier started to come together, um, now suddenly that something was missing, a uh, kind of a uh, ace in the hole kind of thing that 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 would uh, would spice the combat. And huddle came back on the surface again. Like, okay, how can we use that huddle? And but at that point, it was still uh, I have no idea. And uh, the audio director and one of the game designer on the team they said it should be linked to music in some capacity. And they presented me their high-level pitch, and I got super excited because since Peter Quill, like music, is a, a big part of the character and everything, and in the game we have the license tracks, we have the Star-Lord band that is his favorite band, hence the name Star-Lord, things like that. But we didn't have a way to include music and gameplay, and that was the we saw the opportunity there. So the sound designer, the, the sound director and the game designer, they fleshed it out. They came up with the concept like of uh, uh, you, you boost like the, it's kind of the Jerry Maguire, so to speak, like speech, like the guardians come to you, they're either depressed or too cocky and you have to, to decipher like their mood and decide what speech to give and everything. And the idea is that since Peter, like he, he loves to to charm people. He loves to 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 bring people with him and everything. But he's a bit awkward. He doesn't have always the right words and everything. So for him, what about making it link to the music and the lyrics? Like his speeches, like he just base it loosely from the lyrics he knows from the songs he knows, and that's how he he, he delivers those uh, those uh, motiva motivational speech speeches or or fail to to do so, and uh, that's how it started to happen during production, and after that uh, with uh, Mary, uh, Steve, and some other writers, 
started to build all those speeches for the huddle because now it's complicated because it plays random. And you can have a song that in a situation will be a loose because depending on the situation on the battlefield, but another situation on the battlefield, the same song can be on the win side. And therefore, like you need to match, uh, uh, match the, the, the speeches so it can fit in different orders. And there are moments in the game where one or two or more guardians are not in the team. So therefore, you need to write some of those that they can only play in those uh, circumstances because writing all the speeches for all the songs with all the characters and just some characters, it would be endless. And mm-hmm. already what we had to, to do, uh, Mary and I had a couple of uh, evenings with bottle of wines <laughs> and a lot of writing and rewriting. <laughs> yeah, bottles did end up going through several iterations um, because some of it was like, it has to mirror the the license but the, and the, the song. It has to be like recognizable as it's that song. But then it was like, well, well, no, we're going to get into copyright issues if it's too much mirroring it. So then it has to be taken back of stuff. And then it was like, well, no, no, but now it has to go in this direction. So they went through multiple, multiple versions um, right down to the, the 11th hour um, to get them in there and stuff. But it's... Um, it's, it is exciting to see it, and it's exciting to see the reaction that players have had to it. Well, I, I'm kudos to you also for giving players a choice in, in the huddle, right? And having to really pay attention to yes. what his teammates are saying. I thought that was great. It, it made me feel like I was actually having a, a, you know, an impact on what was going to happen next. It, it comes back when you understand your fantasy and playing as the so-called leader. If you have that moment and you don't have that choice it lessened your fantasy of being the so-called leader. Yeah. So that helped to reinforce that in, in, in some respect. Totally. And so music, right? Music is, man, as I was a teenager in the 80s, and so uh, all the songs you picked were just like a, a trip backwards. And I'm sure that's the same for a lot of your audience too. But um, given that I, maybe I'm not your target audience because uh, I'm in my 50s, and you have a lot of younger members on your team, I imagine. Did you have to educate any of your team members on some of these bands? Like, for example, like I, when I heard the first synth chords for Turn Me Loose by Loverboy, like I knew exactly what song that was because I remember listening to that album again and again. Do your team members know those songs? And did you have to like have listening sessions with everybody? I, actually, when the, the list was built, um, uh, maybe I didn't uh, witness everything, but I, I only remember uh, people on the team being very excited about yeah. the songs cool. that were chosen. Uh, I remember people coming with their own ideas. Oh, it would be cool this mm-hmm. or that. And and sometimes, of course, with uh, the the, the uh, getting the rights and things like you don't always get 100% what you, you, you want to get. Uh, but I, I just remember people on the team being really excited that our audio director was sharing like uh, some of the secure songs here and now. And uh, as soon as a new Star Lord song was written, we were sharing it with the team. And I just remember uh, people being just excited by the variety and like going back that memory lane. And and I think even the, the, the younger people on the team too, like it was uh, somehow they either knew those songs or 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 they thought those songs were good if they discovered them. So 
no, I, I think it was a fairly positive. Uh, I, I think the only tricky question I got once it was uh, in a trip to uh, to the to LA to some of our buses, and someone uh, asked, like, "Do you think kids today will care for those songs because they are old songs?" And our answer was, "Well, Peter grew up in the eighties, and it's not about if." It's not. It's about the fantasy. It's not about whether the kids today like it or not. And the other thing, it was a good song is a good song. And I I watched like the seven hours of the Beatles uh, get back together thing, like Peter Jackson thing, and I watched it from start to finish, and I was riveted. And those are songs from the sixties, and they still play today, and they inspire musicians across the world. So. Well- yeah, they really you, you guys picked some great great songs. I mean, iconic and 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 true. They are just awesome songs. You also made a lot of great music. Uh the Starlord band I thought was seriously authentic sounding and kudos to your lead singer. I, who's who's the lead singer for that band? I've been talking about my audio director for the last few minutes. It's him. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um it's uh, Mary. Correct me if uh, my uh, my memory uh, uh, is faulty, but uh, I think uh, early on uh, in the beginning of the project, when we were starting to design the characters visually, uh, the question was like, "Okay, Peter is known as Star Lord. Mm-hmm. Uh, why is he called Star Lord? Like, what's the origin of it? Like in the movie, they ha- the movies they have their thing." But us, like for our game and our vision for the characters, like what what's our thing? And it's one of the concept artists uh, on the team that he came one day said, "What if Starlord is his uh, favorite band?" And my eyes lit up because, like you, I'm a, a kid of the '80s. My favorite band was Iron Maiden and still is to this day. And I had long hair. I had my 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 jean coats with cut sleeves and I had my patch of somewhere in time Iron Maiden with my studs. Basically, young Peter is, uh, is <laughs> I, I took a page of my own life to, 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 for, for, for that beat. And I was like, oh my God, it's, it's a great idea. It's great. And he has his patch and everything. And I'm like, okay, but we, we need to be authentic, like you just said. Like, so if we say in the game that Star Lord is his favorite band, it means that the music needs to exist. Otherwise, it's just like we we say things, but we don't mean them. And uh, and I went like, what if we create this 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 band and we write the music? And I go to Steve uh, Chikovsky, our audio director, and I ask him like, do you feel because I know he's a he's a guitarist singer in a cover band like on Friday nights, Saturday nights. They go around Montreal and they play some gigs and everything. And I said, would you be interested? And it was like his eyes lit up and he was like super excited. So I speak to my producer. I say, hey, man, we have this great idea for Star-Lord. And then I need money and uh, da, da, da. And uh, he says, OK, JF, like I give you the money to write and record one song as a proof of concept. And if it works, then we'll pursue it. And because I said, we cannot just write a song. We need a full album <laughs> because Peter is a fan of Star-Lord and he listens to it in his bed and we need the full album. And, uh, and um, so Steve goes, disappears, does his thing, 
comes back. He gives me the, the, the headset. I start to listen to it. And it was, uh, I think it was Space Riders. And um, I'm like going like this. Wow, that's catchy. It's cool. It starts to sing. Like, singer is great. Like, and I said to Steve, who's singing? And he looks at me, says, it's me. And he goes, yeah, but it's me for the demo. I'm thinking we're going to get the singer when if that thing moves forward and everything. I said, no, we already found our singer. I said, you just keep it the, the way it is right now. And we send it to the team and the team fell in love with the song and everything. Mm-hmm. And that's how it got greenlit to, to, to write a full album. I presented it to Marvel. Marvel like w- was excited with it and everything. And uh, so, no, it, it was really uh, it, it was really fun. But it, it, it was out of passion of trying to be authentic, trying to find something original uh, uh, for Peter that is ownable, that is not a copy of uh, another medium or what that is our own thing. But it started with uh, an idea from one of our concept artists and uh, then uh, us uh, being crazy enough to embark on that journey <laughs> and write the lyrics, the songs, record everything. So, yeah. The, the, like, the lyrics are great too. Mary, did you and your team write those lyrics? No, they were all Steve. Really? Oh, yeah, man. they were all Steve. Yeah, that's he, cool. he did the thing. And, and I know, I mean, I didn't talk to him too much about him, but I know that he was basing a lot of them on, on he knew the themes of the game and he knew the theme of Star-Lord um, and, and the journey of the Guardians. And so many, many of the lyrics were reflective of the journey that the Guardians go through. Um, but that was all Steve. Well, well, clearly, when when Idos Montreal has its next holiday party, you've got your band set, right? <laughs> <laughs> so you have to go outside. It's great. He's ready. <laughs> that is awesome. Well, I I wanted just to conclude by asking you all a, a couple of just questions about just overall questions about the project, and and maybe uh, it's an opportunity to offer advice to other developers. So. For both of you, what are a few of the things that you learned on this project that you plan to repeat on your next projects? Um, for me, it was definitely, I already mentioned the script reads that we did. Um, we instituted that for the first time on this project. Um, and I was totally blown away at at how much it brought to the game. It brought the, the creative team, the writing team became their own they're, they're the found family of, of it they're they're the misfits who all kind of grew together and um, became very very close and collaborative through that um, so I would definitely institute that uh, again for sure to have that kind of thing um, I think what I learned the most on this is to trust the the writers and to to throw things at them that normally in the past I'd be like, oh, maybe I should figure this out first and figure out, but to actually just throw it at them and then then hear hear them and get back. So I would definitely institute a lot of that. Um, JF, if you have some answers, I'll try and think of more while you're you're adding <laughs> yours. <laughs> and it's okay to share things that you wouldn't do on the next project too. So. Uh, the uh, I think, like Mary said, like uh, we work with a bunch of passionate people, and uh, and today uh, I'm way more comfortable with myself. And when I say today, like in my journey, in my career, 
to to embrace the ideas of others like when you're young you're more insecure you're more uh, you want to prove yourself you want this you want that but as you grow older and 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 uh, and I will join you in the 50s uh, next uh, in 2 weeks from now so yeah we're all in the same kind of ballpark uh, and uh, I'm 29 I don't know what you're talking about <laughs> And now, nowadays, it's more like what I learned even more in this project. I, I I let people like run with ideas way more than I used to be very hands on on a lot of things. I'm still am to a certain degree. I still have to be, but but letting go and embracing the creative power of other people as long as it stays within. The direction that we have established in the beginning, I'm, I'm more than happy to to let people uh, prove themselves and and showcase their talent. And one thing that I did learn on this project that I did more than any other projects is when people were coming to me with different ideas. Sometimes, it, even when the idea was in the right direction, I was like, you know, I'm not convinced. Like the idea, there's something that, eh. but I'm like, you know what? You like your idea. You're convinced it will help us to make a better game. Run with it. And we have the right to to be wrong. And if you are wrong, we'll go in the, another direction. And if you are right, we all win. So just just make it happen and, and, and we'll see. Uh, and I think I'm way more comfortable with that today than I was in my uh, in the early stages of my career. And it doesn't. When you're a kid, you feel threatened. Today, I feel empowered. <laughs> it, it's crazy like that. It's weird, and and it makes me much more happy in in, in that role, uh, so to speak. The other thing is we discussed earlier is the illustrated blueprint. It helps to make it tangible and digestible for everyone on the team much more easily. And even someone that joins the team, like let's say two or three years in, there's a lot of backstory that they don't have, but going right away with the blueprint, they can already have a sense quickly in a few hours, that's the game we're making. This is where it's going. And they can ask questions and they can re-challenge things still. And we can have those uh, healthy conversations. So, uh, So yeah. I think another thing we did uh, that was very successful um, was we put together chapter teams. So we actually had writers embedded with level designers and level artists, and we would basically give them, I mean, we had the blueprint, they knew the chapter, they knew what they were going. We would present, this is the goals, this is what has to happen, here's the main story beats. But we let them, the chapter teams, kind of, figure it out together and they would have come back to us with ideas um, for gameplay, for story, for stuff like that. Um, And I think it was very successful in that sense because at least, I mean, I know from a writing standpoint, a lot of times writers of games are complaining that they're left out of the process all the time and they're having to fix, you know, and they have to make sense of stuff that makes no sense. But by actually having them as a part of it, that, that kind of cut that off um, to some degree right away, because then they could be there, they could help foster these ideas, they could um, share and collaborate better. And I think it really made for some very strong stuff. And I think it's funny because um, there are a lot of things, I was talking to my lead writer the other day, and they were like, there's a lot of things that got in the game that I know the writers were like, I can't believe those things got in the game. Like, I can't believe that 
the singing between Gamora and, and Peter or the singing. This came from the team. This came from them. It wasn't from us. And and they're like, we just kept sitting there throwing these ideas at you guys and thinking at some point, Mary's going to cut it off, JS going to cut it off, or, or Marvel's going to cut it off. But nobody cut it off. <laughs> it just kept. And it, it, they were like, I can't believe all this crazy, wacky stuff ended up in the game. Um, and it all ended up because I think we had that uh, that philosophy of, you know, bring us your ideas and, you know, make them work and prove it. That is fantastic. Well, let's thank you for sharing all of that. Um, those are good, really great lessons. And I, I'll, Mary, I'm glad you brought up the collab, import, importance of collaboration between writers and designers, because right with the narrative driven game, it's so crucial that the writers and the designers feel like they're team, a team, right? And not not competing. So. That's super cool to hear. And it really shows in the game how how tight that relationship uh, is uh, up there. So, wow. Was there anything else, you any last shots you want to share with our listeners? Well, uh, for my part, I would say that uh, it's been a crazy ride and seeing the, the reception and seeing people around the world playing it and being enthusiastic about it and like for a lot of people it was one of their best games like uh, and even though it was coming like i didn't expect this one to be good or things like that but still uh it it, it was super um super fun to see that people had fun they were laughing but some also almost cried and i remember back in the days of ps2 if you remember like oh it's the generation where now we're going to make people cry because everything will... and we were like back then i remember how do you make people cry like is there a recipe you do this 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 and people cry uh, no I, I think it's just you just go with your guts and when you embrace the material you play with and you just like fall in love with it and you just go with your heart I think it helps and seeing the reaction for me, it's been, uh, it's probably been the, the greatest reward. And this game, even though uh, uh, there were a little bit of bugs and, and things like that in the end, and uh, it, it feels like it's the first game that has 80 that feels like 90 from my perspective. And it feels, um, I'm super happy. And, uh, you know, it's uh, thanks to the fun, really, because you've been, you've been great and, the love that uh, we have received as a team is uh, unparalleled. Yeah, I can't really top that because I agree with everything JF said. So I'll just say, if you haven't played the game and you're going to hide the tech and lose, and and if you like puppies, then <laughs> then you should not save Cosmo. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> no spoilers. That's awesome. Cool. Well, thank you all so much for taking the time. Uh, it's been a lot of fun talking Thanks to, to you. you. It's been and congratulations awesome. again on the game. Thank, thank you, you very much. Really appreciate it. And good luck with uh, the, the upcoming Insomniac games. There's a lot on the plate and I can't wait to play it myself. Me too. <laughs> right on. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for the Game Maker's Notebook. For more information on the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, our podcasts, and our other initiatives, please visit www.interactive.org. Listen up! 
I won't sugarcoat it. This is the longest cold flu and allergy season we've ever seen, but we're not alone. We've got Instacart. Sure, you may be a coughing snot faucet who just wants mommy, but you're not giving up! Not when cold medicine, fragrant herbal teas, and honey shaped like bears can be delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes. Now let's go win the sick playoffs! Daddy, I just want my soup. Oh, sorry, Sport App says it'll be here in, in a few minutes. <laughs> Instacart for the win.